0: The way you look, I think you know what I'm saying, old-timer. But I think you do. Jesus Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. <laughs> this isn't playtime. This is serious business. Well, the play must go on, like me. I'm always home. I'm on my mind. Go on. I've been thinking a lot about dying lately. I'm trying to do good.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of That's That, a Philip Seymour Hoffman retrospective podcast. My name is Timothy Mark Davis, and I'm your host. Today, we are talking about Hard Eight, the 1996 directorial debut of writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, Samuel L. Jackson, and the one-scene wonder, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I hope you took some time to watch the film on Amazon Prime because it contains the origin story of the glorious Paul Thomas Anderson and Philip Seymour Hoffman collaboration that we have come to love. My guest today is brother, filmmaker, and PTA enthusiast, Andrew Paul Davis. Andrew, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. I am just had some lunch, pretty hydrated, ready to go. Incredible. What a place to be at to discuss Hard Eight. So today we are talking about Hard Eight, which features Philip Seymour Hoffman as young craps player, the (laughs) obnoxious asshole who berates Sydney, the protagonist played by Philip Baker Hall, during a game of craps. I do not understand craps and I don't know that I ever will. But here's the log line from IMDb. Professional gambler Sidney teaches John the tricks of the trade. John does well until he falls for cocktail waitress Clementine. Here's the logline from Amazon Prime. John, a down-and-out gambler at an all-time low, meets professional gambler Sidney. Under Sidney's fatherly tutelage, John becomes a successful small-time professional gambler, and all is well until he falls for Clementine. Gwyneth Paltrow, a cocktail waitress, and hooker. The first thing I'll point out is that Gwyneth Paltrow is the only person who receives a acting credit in the Amazon Prime logline. No one else does. Besides that, Andrew, assessments, votes, thoughts about these two different loglines. Yeah, it seems like Amazon, by mentioning
2: hooker, is doing something there um mentoring hooker and gwyneth paltrow yeah the the interesting thing too about what you said about her only being mentioned is like the way that amazon creates the links to movies so on my macbook when i was watching it last night um you know when like the link sometimes comes across the top screen on like the newish ones yeah and it's like amazon.com slash Hard Dash Eight dot Gwyneth dot you know, like, Whoa. so. Like for s- huh. for whatever reason, she's kind of the the leading leading star. Um,
1: yeah, which well, I mean, I certainly in terms of like global recognition and net worth, yeah, she's the twenty twenty yep. winner of all these people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but still, like Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, I know he he would be he would be competitive to me and and worthy of putting in.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think his performance in this is so underrated just because he did Pulp Fiction a couple years before this and he had some other roles around this time. Just I'm I'm thinking about when he like beats his chest when he's winning the game towards the end. (laughs) He's
1: just like phenomenal. You know, he was 48 years old when they did this film. Wow. Samuel Jackson was born in like 1942. I yeah. had no idea that he's in his seventies. Yeah. He fought in world war two. He's oh the, in the great. God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> his, his lifespan and just like career and when his career peaked, just a very interesting, interesting story. And it was weird to me. You know what I thought this time? I was like looking at this in 1996 and then all of a sudden imagining Mace Windu three yeah. years later. Like yeah. what? <laughs> Master Windu,
2: how pleasant of you to join us. This party's over. I think the other side of that coin is how over 40 John C. Riley looks at 30 in this and movie. And he's 30. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> uh. It's so true. It is very true. That was something that I actually looked up just because I thought it was is interesting. Yeah. Philip Baker Hall was 64. Gwyneth Paltrow was 23. Mm. Um, Paul was, Paul Thomas Anderson was 25 when they were filming this, mm-hmm. which is so young to be taking on this uh, cast this film it's and awesome this cast. Yeah. cast yeah. And, and Phil was 28 uh, when they were filming or, or when this came out right around the area. So as mentioned, Hard Eight was written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson of Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood, Punch Drunk Love, Magnolia, The Master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread. Fame. Surely you've seen at least one of those films. I encourage you to see them all. I think maybe yeah, skip one. (laughs) But I would go for it. I'd go for it. Are you talking Uh, about Inherent Vice? Maybe (laughs) because I I think everyone, even if
2: I feel like they wouldn't like it, I think. I would recommend that to everyone just to have a new experience
1: besides mom and dad yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go back and watch inherent Vice, definitely um, it's yeah it's a little low on the totem pole but I it's it's worth a rewatch Phil acted and we've said this over and over but this collaboration really is I think the core of Phil's career the range of characters displayed throughout PTA's films truly represents his acting, ability. And some of the best movies he was ever in are some of these movies. So he acted in five of PTA's films and hard eight represents the meet cute of these two artists who really were destined to be together. So the film premiered on January 20th, 1996 at the Sundance Film Festival, a small indie film festival. You may have heard of whatever happened to Sundance, you know, what a shame. (laughs) It has an 80% On Rotten Tomatoes, if that means something to you, and had a budget of $3 million, which means you would need to make 126 hard eights to equal the budget of Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, (laughs) Uh... which is astounding to me that that film is at the top of the film budget lists because I don't think I saw it. (laughs) Even though I love not Pirates to, of the Caribbean. Not to interrupt your
2: factoids, which you've already interrupted with Pirates of the Caribbean tangent, but <laughs> didn't it?
1: I thought it premiered at Cannes. It premiered at Sundance? It got into Cannes, but I believe it actually premiered at Sundance. Okay. Con oh was when it was like, which we'll hear about when it was like, okay, it got into con. I need to submit my film, not the film that this other company wants. And mm-hmm. and the battle in the battle began. Yeah. I could be wrong on that, but that was at least what the stuff in uh, IMDb pro was saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film was shot throughout uh, Sparks, Nevada and Reno, Nevada in several different casinos, hotels, streets and homes. Uh, it's based on a 1993 PTA short film called Cigarettes and Coffee, which you can find on YouTube if you're interested. And that also starred Philip Baker Hall as Sydney. Uh, and again, oh, and that and that short film premiered at Sundance in 1993. And that's and that's really what put Paul on the film scene. The Sundance folks were impressed with the short film. They invited him to the, the Sundance Institute director's lab to develop a feature film. Hence we have hard eight, the film featured music by Michael Penn, who we talked about in our shorts and music videos episode a few weeks back. Uh, the, again, a collaboration that sort of began here. The director of photography was Robert Ellswit, who's worked on, who's worked as DP in all but two of PTA's films. um, Including the Michael Penn and Amy Mann music videos and the Mattress Man commercial, which again, we (laughs) talked about all those short projects a couple episodes ago. So again, you're seeing this sort of Paul Thomas Anderson uh, unit of collaborators and overlapping a lot of it starting with Hard Eight. Of course, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley as actors, both of them have excellent turns in Boogie Nights and Magnolia. So many relationships formed in this first feature film that lasted for years and even now decades.
2: I saw in the opening credits too that Mark Bridges, the costume designer, was also working with him back then. Okay. So that must have been has cool. He been on,
1: has he been with him since then?
2: Yeah. He, he's the one who won the, the jet ski and the Oscar for Phantom Thread.
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is so funny.
2: Yeah. Th- that's going to be awesome to just see him like 20 years later after working with that's him. So cool. Take that home.
1: That was another, I don't know. It might've been in a, some article I was reading, but the, I cannot remember the guy's name. So now I feel terrible, but the assistant camera Mm. AC on hard eight, he turned down some huge film in order to do hard eight and has now been an AC on every single one of Paul's films. Nice. So again, it's just this like, gosh, who you start with could be so, so important. Uh, and of course, one of these collaborations, the reason we're here today, this is Philip Seymour Hoffman's 13 feature, 13th feature film where he plays Young Craps Player, the obnoxious asshole who antagonizes Philip Baker Hall, Sydney during a game of craps. In the backdrop of this film's creation, however, which I thought this was so interesting, was a massive battle between Paul and his financiers. Uh, I thought the context of this would be great to set us up for today. And who better to set it up than
0: Paul Thomas Anderson himself? And, um, Hard uh, Eight or Sydney mm-hmm. is my first one. This is a movie that I wrote and directed, it was my first movie, and I had the most horrendous time through the editing process, it was just, like, financed by people whose roots were in television, mm-hmm. bad television, like Baywatch-type mm-hmm. television stuff, and decided to try and get into movies. and. It was just a situation where clearly they hadn't read the script, you know. Mm. And I delivered the movie, and they were sort of really confused. And all I could do was kind of point to the script and say, this is what I shot, this is what you paid for, this is what you agreed to. And this sort of argument would always come up, well, the script is not the movie, and the movie is not the script. It's mm. like, but that's the agreement, mm. you know, and I stuck to it. Yeah, so this this film
1: really should probably be called Sydney. Uh, that was, that is what Paul titled it. That's what he, he continues to call it from what I can tell. Uh, but he got in this battle with the studio about the title. Andrew, before I jump to the next clip, because there's a lot of interesting tidbits that, that Paul gives us in some of these early interviews. He doesn't really talk about it anymore, but in the late nineties, he was pissed and going off the cuff about yeah. some of these hard eight experiences. What's your sort of take on the Sydney versus hard eight title? just curious mm. of your opinion of that just pure like not knowing anything about just like what's a better title yeah <laughs> maybe opinion. like what's a better title not knowing anything and then what's uh-huh. a better title for the film knowing the film Hmm. cuz those could be different um, answers <laughs> I, I did not have the associations
2: that i think he has with
1: that title <laughs> oh that, yes let's uh, mention... let's play some of, let's play some of those right now
0: yeah <laughs> That is a, truly actually a very, very, very long and painful story. But the bottom line is, is that the name of the, name of the movie that I made is called Sydney. Uh, and it was retitled by the distributor and the company that paid for it as Heartache, which sounds like heartache. But then if you make it heartache, it just sort of sounds like a porno movie, you know? Um, so there's that. And I, the reason that it just happened, what had happened was that they had made a cut of their mo- the, the cut of the movie and they'd called it Heartache. They'd sort of taken it away from me. I eventually got a cut back, had my cut, which is the thing that was released ultimately. But I said, so mine's called Sydney. And they said, well, ours is called Heartache. Well, eventually we'll go with yours, but we're gonna call yours Heartache. And I said, no, you're not. And I said, we're going with ours and it's called Heartache. So it was the one battle in this entire massive battle that I had to fight to regain control of my movie that I lost. It was at the finish line. And I don't know whether it was out of spite or whether they really wanted an extra shot on Showtime where Hard Eight kind of fits as a title (laughs) or what. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, on Showtime, it's always hard everything, you know, hard justice, hard bounty, (laughs) hard targets, (laughs) two. So I prefer to call it Sydney, but I've I've come to enjoy Hard Eight as a title a little bit. A little bit? Just that much. It's just He goes on
1: this whole diatribe about being so mad about the title. And he's like, I've come to like it a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm sure now he just does not care at all. And he yeah. thinks it's a fine title. Yeah. But. Um, I actually think it's a better title. I think um, I do too. It makes you question. It, yeah. it creates more intrigue than Sydney. At least for me. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think um,
2: separating from Aesthetics. I, I mean, it, it does make sense that financiers would rename it something that could be associated with gambling so that you could yes. tap a casino loving audience totally. or a Vegas audience or whatever.
1: Yeah, And I love the story of, you know, this battle that he had uh-huh. and how he ended up, you know, according to him, getting his film back. Here it is.
0: First movie I shot in 28 days. Right. Um, and then... Only had three weeks to do a director's cut, but then sort of got in the whole melee of fighting with this company, which 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 lasted a year essentially, right? And backed me into Boogie Nights because I thought my I thought my first movie had been taken away from me completely, mm-hmm. and the only way that I could deal with that um, was to go make another movie. Mm-hmm. So I started prepping Boogie Nights, but in the middle of prepping Boogie Nights, I had sort of sort of essentially stolen back my kind of work print elements and um, on Sydney. Mm. And um, created. How, how crea- did you do that? Well, I had a dupe. I had a dupe um, a print made. You know, um, so I was able to submit that dupe uh, work print to Can. Mm-hmm. And when Can saw my cut of the film, they invited it uh, to uh, come in a certain regard. You mm. know, so it was this big deal. And I called Reicher up and I said, "Listen." I know I, you know, I know I have a sort of, it's your property, you guys own it, you know, I have pride of authorship, but certainly not pride of ownership here. You guys own it, but I took my dupe work print, I submitted the can, it's in. This is a big mistake if you guys don't give me some money, let me finish the movie, and they're like, no. Really? We're not giving you. We don't care if it's Cannes. We don't care about anything else. The great thing is is that they're like a foreign sales guy. They go there to sell their product, you know. They go to Cannes and then the marketplace. And here they have a movie that's kind of in, in competition for a certain regard, you know. Yeah. And they're like saying, no, we don't want to be there. First of all, they weren't going to let me go. You know, they weren't going to let me take, you know, even. And I, and I didn't want to go into the fucking Grand Palais with my dupe work print. So I said, let me have the original negative elements they'd already cut negative on their version by the way so I had to essentially take I couldn't just match up my dupe work print to my negative I mean they'd already cut negative Presumably, they'd cut into your shots exactly so how did you deal with that I had to go to alternate takes um which you know weren't as good sometimes but but essentially because there's a three or four very long Steadicam shots and of course they cut you know right into the middle of it can you splice back in now you can but you lose a frame and it's kind of a great study in what one frame is because a lot of times you go along and you're like don't miss it we feel good and you're cruising along and you're taking your frames off because you're fixing it and you don't feel it and then you get to one and you're like that one frame makes all the difference it's insane you know Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be feel like it does
1: i was there's so much to unpack and and i know you know last episode with with john Povolonas where we talk about a late quartet. He, he berated me about talking about log lines, talking about the film and was like, isn't this a Philip Seymour Hoffman podcast? Why are we talking about all these other things? Uh, I I think it's, you know, it's a Philip Seymour Hoffman podcast, but it's also whatever the hell I want it to be each week. So start your own podcast. If you don't like all the background information about heart eight, because again, this PTA slash PSH relationship is so important. and, And I'm just fascinated by the inferno that was making hard eight. I mean, how do you st- steal back the, the dupe or like the 16 millimeter print, whatever, like so much film speak in here. Maybe you can untangle some of that, Andrew, cause I don't fully understand all the stuff he's saying, mm-hmm. but like steal that back, try to patch it together to get what you want that, so that you can submit it to can, but like also submit to can beforehand, an unapproved version. Like he was kind of going rogue, angry, yeah. angry, young artist in this phase. It's pretty yeah. amazing.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, uh yeah, that it could have gotten worse. Right. Like he
1: totally, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, he could have been sued. Like, yeah, for sure. He didn't own, he didn't own the film. Yeah. Gosh, it's wild. It is, it is very, uh, interesting. I, I read somewhere else. I don't know if this is accurate, Um, but I read somewhere else that in order to, to pay to finish the movie, like he mentions in there, you know, give me the money to finish the. It got into can, give me the money to finish the movie. And they said, no, I heard that he took some of his boogie nights, advance money and used that to pay to finish hard eight. That is true. Yeah, that's, that is true. I'm pretty sure. It's just so stressful to think about like you're in a post-production distribution premiere nightmare with hard eight. Mm-hmm. While you're also filming and in pre-production and trying to make Boogie Nights happen, it's yeah. like the overlap of those two films. It probably explains why many of his later films have been at least somewhat more spread out than yeah, than those two for sure.
2: Um, just talking about those two movies next to each other, I did find it. Yeah. I, I do find it cool that the opening music in Hard Eight is like used in a. Darker montage towards the end of Boogie Nights. Yes, just that it is. weird theme that
1: isn't that is... doesn't come up again in Hard Eight, but it's just a cool right. sound. I like that. It's interesting. That score. Well, he's got that connection. What is it like, Philip Baker Hall's characters in in Boogie Nights, or he's like Jimmy Gator in Magnolia, mm-hmm. and that's someone who he talks about in Hard Eight. I saw that the character. <laughs> I noticed he that is for the first Boogie time Nights. today. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's some of those it's like uh, Easter egg filmmaker things that that you you find out in in imdb trivia or if Mm -hmm. you're paying very close attention Mm -hmm. so this this context in mind and and we will get you know phil only has one scene in this film but it is really an iconic scene and, and an iconic performance it's the classic like bring hoffman in for one scene he is gonna elevate this film elevate the scene really shine and do something hilarious and interesting um, but but before we get there, what are your overall thoughts, feelings, and impressions of Heart 8? It feels veiled in a different
2: way than some of his other films. You know, say like The Master, that you sort of like, mm. you go into it and it's a little different every time. I think yeah. I feel the same way about this, obviously in a much different way. But I always, when I watch, I think this is like my fourth or fifth time watching Heart 8. <laughs> and um. <laughs> Not a lot
1: of people who can say that yeah.
2: <laughs> there's, there's always a, a few things that I don't really remember. Um, so it kind of has this, um, I don't know if that has anything to do with the movie or just, I know what you're, it doesn't
1: stick for some reason.
2: Yeah. I don't yeah. know why that is, but there's like, I, I often forget like the midpoint, like, you know, violent event yep. that happens. Yeah. um, the long steady cam shot of like Philip Baker Hall heading up the stairs right before that scene, I was like, I feel like I've never seen this before. Wow. And then it started yeah. to trip me out, and I was wondering, like <laughs> because I I was watching it on Amazon and the like watch prime version yeah. is what is what I was watching. But there was a second title that was like for rent. Yeah. And they were like separate right. links. And it confused me and like scared me of like, wait, did the movie studio end up like releasing their own cut after all? <laughs> like oh my gosh. I, I don't I don't think that happened, but yeah. Um, that that was kind of weirding me out. But I think the movie overall, um especially during the first half, I just kind of have this, have this slight smile the whole time. Like I, I like it. I, I think it's mm-hmm. got this like noirish delight to it kind of like Mm -hmm. a fireplace i don't know what kind of vibe um yeah sydney's character and some of the dialogue like it feels very like a 50s film with yes the 90s film look you know that was it kind of has that that feel to it with how like guarded and brings that quality too yes absolutely like his guardedness and like proto
1: masculinity
2: whatever yep. um yep. he's silent. a different
1: class of human than the aesthetics of the film
2: yeah yeah he brings just this old hollywood western yeah. noir something kind of style to it that, mm-hmm. um that i think is charming and it's cool to see him be yep. like a nice guy <laughs> and yeah. um kind of like snap at different points and he kind of like loses his cool um mm-hmm. despite the veneer of guy who like confidently sits alone in diners and corners of casinos and yeah does his sudoku and shit um so i i think there's there's something about it that seems i I think the deeper you get into paul's filmography the more his like kind of true like dense style kind of emerges like Mm -hmm. Kind of in like the punch drunk love there'll be blood sort of transition period. Um his like influences of like Mammoth and Scorsese like seem really on display here, more so Mm -hmm. than his own sensibilities that would emerge later on. Um yeah, I, I, I just think that the um, well, while the story is like not the best in the world the script like also seems like a 50s script in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very think, thin very thin plot. Yeah. Yeah, thin plot, but okay. the um I think some of the like cinematography choices are excellent like the sh- yep. you know I, I think the one we all remember the most is just him getting in the car with Jimmy with the big casino lights that two shot of yeah. them. Yeah. and I just noticed yesterday like I just love the shot of the cuffs and the gun like sliding down into the sewer and oh yes great yeah. imagery um, and the cast like all have scenes where they just like really shine I think mm-hmm. like Gwyneth Paltrow and her first Steiner scene where she's talking like she's, mm-hmm. she's I don't know why but I just think she's awesome in that scene
0: you look at me as a piece of shit now because you saw me coming out of that room no I don't Just a good girl, you know, trying to save up in a beauty salon. Maybe that is. I don't know. I don't want to open a fucking beauty salon. It's just, it's so much different than what you think.
2: Explain it to me then.
0: I don't. I don't do anything that I don't want to do. You understand? Are you, um, are you going to tell John that you saw me? No.
2: John C. Riley, especially in that phone call scene towards the end that we talked oh about. Oh gosh, um, yeah.
1: Thank you, Sid.
0: I love you too.
2: And Sam Jackson kills it. Um, yep. Are you telling me no? no I, Is that
1: what you're no, saying no, to me? No, 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 you just... fucking idiot.
0: You don't know me. I will put bullets in you for it. You understand? All right, I'll get it tomorrow. No, no, no. You can't get it tomorrow. You have to get it now. Jimmy, please it? don't point the gun. I want the money now. You no, hear me? No, no, Jimmy, I want the money now. Don't point the gun, Jimmy, Call please. me a tough guy, huh? Huh? Jesus Christ, I am a tough like guy. So this your no. face is real tough, ain't it?
1: Yeah,
2: so it it it's um, it's a great debut, I think. And a, a, a is, good, yeah,
1: a good movie, but not a great movie overall. Yep. Yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's a great, I think it's an excellent debut feature film, and I think it's a good, it's a good film. It holds up. I think it's worth rewatch, particularly if you're a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, but maybe you're just more familiar with like his greatest hits, like Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood. Uh, I think if, but if you love those movies, I do think it's worth a watch and and even rewatches because like you said, there's a, there's something youthful about the, the style, about the way he's filming. It's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit derived and derivative, which is like the best any of us can do in our twenties and mm-hmm. even in our thirties, mm-hmm. but there's still something that feels very PTA vibe and and it, and it may be, it may be the character's. You know, just these, these distinct characters that have dialogue that I think, I know I say this all the time, but some of the dialogue does have that like surprising, but inevitable feel to it. It's like when they're saying it, it makes complete sense that these different people are saying the things they're saying, but it never feels contrived or, or hacky. It's just like interesting words. You know, he's always been so good at, at words and, and probably overshadowed by like a Tarantino, you know, people are just Mm -hmm. obsessed with Tarantino dialogue. Um, I think, I think Paul's dialogue to me anyways, usually has some more layers and takes some more, some more risks in terms of meaning. Mm
0: -hmm. Whereas
1: Tarantino is like a master of style. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that distinction kind of makes, makes sense, but um, I, I found it like, I, I, I can't remember if I'd seen it once before or twice before, but I kind of left this film being like, this movie is underrated. Like I liked mm. it more now that, and, and that might just be because I'm in this very like open receptive, every, every film movie that I'm watching, I'm just ready to receive its best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the thing that really, really surprised me and, and delighted me, and you mentioned it already was, was that final phone call with, with, Philip Baker Hall and and John C. Riley, where where Sydney Sydney tells John, you know, I love you, I love you like my own son. And and John C. Riley has this like massive pregnant pause, trying not to cry. Says thank you, Sid. Another massive pause where he's trying not to cry and says, I love you too. <laughs> and like, how does a it's it's so impressive to me when a when a filmmaker from from the writing and, and directing and storytelling sense can get to the end of a film and have a I love you, I love you too, and it doesn't feel cheap, it doesn't feel unearned. It, it it's like perfect. It it fits really mm. well. Um so the, yeah, the I just plot feel like twist, it's a little underrated.
2: Yeah, the plot twist with Sydney is great. And that's kind of what it is great adds meaning to that
1: yeah yeah the whole film really hinges on that and and it works it works right for
2: me. because in the beginning it's like john c reilly kind of gives this perfect resistance to <laughs> the inciting going to you yes. know going to vegas and believe whatever.
1: me if you pull anything i will fuck you up <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah such a good line
2: so he's like super believable in that but in the beginning yeah. we're kind of like what is this like when Sydney first walks up and we're just getting his shoulder and he's just like, I'm the guy who's going to, who's giving you a cigarette, buying you a cup of coffee. You need a friend. (laughs) He, it appears like serving the script, you know, like we need to just like Uh get these two characters together. But once we find out why Sydney is doing what he's doing, it's like pretty satisfying.
1: Yeah. The first, you are sort of left with this. I think that's part of, part of the thing that makes the film work too, is this, intrigue around the character of Sydney. it's like you can't decide is he playing the long con like is is this leading to an ultimate n- manipulation where Sydney is just going to take this guy for everything he's worth and use him is this leading to some sort of like I lost my son and I need and I need a replacement or I need a protege to make my legacy continue or he's just a weird guy and we're it's a mystery we're never going to find out like th- those are all the things that or happening in my mind. Cause I kind of mm-hmm. like forgot the plot of this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then to realize like, Oh, he is repaying a debt. You know, he is, this is, uh, this is coming from a place of pain and a place of regret. And he's trying to make it up to this man that he killed by taking care of, taking care of his son. It's a, it, it sort of gives like the first two thirds of the movie, a rush of meaning. Whereas mm. before it was a question and you're wondering mm-hmm. and you're confused. And I think, I think Paul is a master at crafting a sense of confusion that is probably alienating for a lot of film watchers um, or maybe not film watchers, but a lot of, a lot of people, but for people who appreciate the intrigue and the confusion and the mystery and are kind of like searching for the payoff, but don't know where it's coming or how it's coming. I think it works really well in this film when we find out that. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason he's helping John is because he killed his father.
2: Mm-hmm. It's it's funny. I'm not really – I'm never, like, suspicious of Sidney in the beginning for some reason. Like, I kind of yeah. immediately trust him. And, right. You know, I know, like, Altman was really influential in PTA, too, and how he's mm. always been trying to do that, like, look into the camera, eye shot that Altman sort of –
1: uh, oh, that was something I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, is the, in that first scene, and it happens again later too, but it's almost like Philip Baker Hall is looking into the lens, but he's just off of it. And then when uh-huh. it's John C. Riley's close up, it's kind of just a more normal over the shoulder angle. Yeah, it's just a little more off. Um, yeah, I think there's something
2: about that like directness that uh, gets us to trust Sydney a little bit. Um, because I, I never yeah I, I didn't like feel the way you felt in the front in, in the beginning of the film but yeah when he's talking with Gwyneth Paltrow with Clementine in the diner and he's talking yeah. about you, you know you find out he's divorced he hasn't talked to his kids in a while yeah. it, it, that would almost be enough of just like here's this like drifter guy who's like looking for a project of a person, you know, yeah, who's just like for new, new kids looking for weird friends in Nevada. You know, it's like, that's right. not far-fetched for like yeah. American men to just that's, kinda, that's like... true, <laughs> but it's, it's better and a better payoff once yeah. we, we get deeper than that. Definitely.
1: Definitely. So let's get into the Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. And I want to start us off with PTA talking about how he and Phil met, and how this cinematic romance began.
0: Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, um, this, the, the, the day that I, I first saw Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman in Scent of a Woman, directed by Marty Brest, and I, well, I remember sitting in the theater and seeing that movie and just falling in love with Phil Hoffman, like, fuck. Whoever this guy is, I gotta have him. I gotta see him. I gotta know him. He's—I just—I gotta have this guy. You know, it's such an incredible performance. And so when I when I wrote this, I, I wrote it w- with with Phil in mind, you know. Um, and I, I must admit that it's kind of in the tradition of characters that he's done this sort of loudmouth, obnoxious asshole, you know. Uh, and but I didn't feel bad about it because I really wanted it to hopefully be the the top.
2: I'm not allowed to cigarette, old timer.
0: What are you gonna do? <laughs> um, uh, I said, well, I'd like to be the kind of writer and director that that, that that gives actors sort of an opportunity to do something they haven't done before. But I was essentially you know I was calling Philip Hoffman up to do something that he'd done a version of before. But I didn't feel bad about it because I thought we'll make it the best version. <laughs> I think we were all just really blown away by him and just fell in love with him. And we were so excited, you know, to have him, you know. And um, we we had really quite a good time. That's why I wrote Scotty for him, you know. But the first day that I met Phil Hoffman in person was the day that we shot the scene.
1: And this just like, and bo- it's so funny how both of them, you know, Phil's got interviews where he talks about like, oh, yeah, we met on Heart 8 and you know, I met him that day and came in and did the scene. And I was in LA several weeks later and we met up and screwed around and we became fast friends. It was just like this, this meeting and, and Phil, Phil had seen cigarettes and coffee at Sundance because a friend of his was in that. Oh. And Paul had seen Sen of a woman. So there was like this intrigue between the two of them. And then this connection was made. It was like, come out for a day, shoot this craps player scene and then, boom, we've got some of the great performances of the last 30 years because of this <laughs> pairing. So I want to ask you, Andrew, what makes this this scene in Hard Eight, what makes that scene so good? I think it's Phil's hair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know
2: if the filming dates were like in 94 or 95, but I like need to know why his hair was like that. When he got well, there.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think. It's not extensions, uh, this, is it? The, no, because he, he shot the yearling or, or the yearling came out, the yearling came out in 94 and he has really long hair for that. Okay. But, yeah, that doesn't quite seem like it, like it lines up honestly, cause they were probably shooting that in 93. I think they were shooting this, uh, in, in 95. Uh huh. Why was his hair like that? i don't I know but it's
2: perfect it's so perfect um I, I i love the his performance could seem like 10 percent more out of nowhere if i think paul as a director didn't have these like great that great long like steady cam shot where we're like appreciating all the background actors yeah. in the casino yeah. so to meet jimmy and like you know we're it doesn't seem out of place for some reason. Um, right. E- even though it is this kind of strange, as my partner, Sarah, described it. We watched it together and she was
1: like, kind of seems like an intermission just to like have some great acting for like a minute or two. <laughs> well, the movie really does focus on those four other characters mm-hmm. pretty much exclusively. Right. And then the one fill scene, at least from what I can remember, rises. Rises to the top as like he is the fifth character. Yeah, in the movie. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think there. I think the way he performs it and the the fact that that scene is in there like does help us feel Sidney's alienation from like mm. the era he now finds himself in and yeah the youth and the lack of respect and you know he has those concerns with Jimmy. Mm -hmm. um as well and Mm -hmm. it's just like they're back and forth those shots are just like great and i honestly i i think what i didn't really like notice as much before but i think what like really seals the deal for it just being like such a great scene and and performance that stands out is the very end of the scene um philip baker hall just like turns around leaves the craps table and and young craps player is kind of like, Hey, I'll buy you a drink old timer. I'll buy a drink old timer. He he leans forward with this like little bit of sadness and loneliness in his eyes. That's just kind of like, Oh, I didn't mean to be mean. I was just trying to have fun. Yeah. And then he does his little laugh after that to kind of like return to normal with everyone else. Try to diffuse the tension a little bit, but yeah, I, I kind of like, he didn't, I don't think he had to bring that layer of like uh, re- regretting a little bit yeah. that he had like really yeah. pulled his chain, pulled Sydney's chain. Yeah. He,
1: he's got, he's got one line, you know, he he's, he kind of like leans forward and leans back and he's like, fuck. And he, he just looks like a little bit like, Oh, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done that. That was too much. And then it's the, I'll buy a drink old timer. And then it's, ah, again, we, we've already talked about this multiple times on this podcast, the ability to do those multiple things in a very short amount of time or at the same time, I think is just one of those distinguishing characters for, for Phil Hoffman that you just, you just don't see that type of intricacy as much as you wish. Mm-hmm. And I did look it up. So 15-Minute Hamlet came out in 95, which we talked about on the shorts episode, Hmm. and he has super long hair in that. Uh And then Twister came out in 96, and he's got super long hair in that as Dusty Davis. So it's sort of like this, I don't know, I don't know, like... Maybe it was fifteen minute Hamlet. He was like, because before that is nobody's fool, which we reviewed. He's got a short kind of crew cut in that, so he must have started growing it out for something, for <laughs> Twister or for, yeah. you know. This was only a one day shoot, so I don't imagine he's growing his hair out for right. for this. But right, it very seems like he that He had that phase because of how
2: <laughs> it it just like feels like he did because of yeah. the intentionality yeah. that comes through with the other aspects. <laughs>
1: Well, it's but, like he's got the length, but but someone styled it too. Like someone gave it this, like, oh, here's a here's a gambler from Reno, yeah, <laughs> in the mid '90s hairstyle. Uh-huh. It's it's just so mm-hmm. so perfect.
2: Mm-hmm. I love watching those people next to him for some reason. Just like the mustache guy, and and there's like other scenes where just like the the one or two extras next to our leading people who like yeah. Almost don't know what to do because they're with such great actors.
1: <laughs> it's true. They're kind of like it's, reacting,
2: but then also yeah. like deciding not to react because they don't want to overdo
1: it. <laughs> yeah, yep. It it feels like they were not directed at all. Yeah. Like, and, and I think what I heard in, in one of the interviews, I guess they, they shot this at like two in the morning. <laughs> it's like mm. show up in the middle of the night. Here's our extras. Mm-hmm. And you know what that could be? Maybe that was, maybe the casino was open then, or that's when they could rent it. Or like they needed right. to rent it while it was open so that they mm-hmm. had staff there. Like who knows the, the reasoning for filming at that time. But mm-hmm. yeah, there is, they're like amazing set decoration or just like yeah. filling in, <laughs> filling in the gaps yep. of this casino life that's really foreign to a lot of us. And and no one is like put, like this is normal. It's like, mm-hmm. it's a little bit normal that this one guy is antagonizing uh-huh. this older guy. Yeah.
0: Come on, old timer. You gonna join us here, my friend? Come on. I don't wait for old people. I don't wait for old people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's see another step. Here we go. 8 zero, eight. We're out eight on a point of eight. Better back hard. Eight. Okay, I'm gonna light a cigarette now, old timer. See, the thing is, I like you, and I'm gonna light a cigarette. And I'm gonna let you have this time to place your bet before I finish lighting this cigarette. And then when I finish lighting, I'm just going to roll and fuck you. <laughs> You're laughing at that? I just said, fuck you to the man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the way you look, I think you know what I'm saying, old timer. I think you do. Jesus Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. <laughs> All right, shaka-laka-doo. Shaka-laka-dooby-dooby-doo. Shaka-laka-doo. You have got a little bit more there. Coming in there, baby. Shaka Laka Doo, baby. I'm almost lighting it, baby. I'm gonna light the cigarette, old timer. What are you gonna do? $2,000 heartache. $2,000 heartache's a bet. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, man. You play that game, don't you? Oh, shit. Fuck <laughs> You're big time! You are big time! <laughs> oh, hard eight. Oh, OK, here we go. All right, here we go. All right, it's for you, big time. All right, I'm not even looking for Here we go! Hey, six? A hard a hard six. Hard six? That's a hard six, old timer. That's not bad for me. That's not bad for me, is it, sister? It is Sister Sledge. <laughs> There we go. It's me and you. You know what I'm saying? Forty. Fucking hundred. Party. Hundred. Me and you, big time. Me and you. You can buy yourself another suit with this roll. Forty-four. Fucking forty-four, big time. Two thousand. Two thousand, really? hundred. Hundred. Two thousand. Two thousand, hundred. Hundred. Two thousand. Forty-four. Eight easy. Easy eight. Five and a three. It's a front line winner. Bam. Fuck! Right. Yes. <laughs> Fuck! Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! That's a good. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Right. shit! Right. I'm sorry, big right. time. Hey, big time, I'll buy you a drink.
2: Ha <laughs> ha! Oh, I it's like can a lullaby to, to my ears. It really is. So, so something. Well, <laughs> I was just going to, were you about to m- talk about the improv
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. I just looked up the script. And I confirmed. did too. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, oh, that is so funny. Oh my God. Uh, you yeah, want to so, read
2: all the lines uh, that he did have? Yeah. He's well, to yeah, say.
1: You, yeah. Do uh, you have this like old photocopied version? Yes. Okay let's uh i'll read young player you read you read uh you read sydney <laughs> or let's just read the whole scene read, read yeah the, um yeah go ahead I'll, I'll read the
2: i'll read everything that's not phil so you yeah. can have your little fantasy oh, yes. um, <laughs> sydney is at a crowded crap stable the game is in progress and things are hot he's got about three thousand dollars in front of him he plays as usual without emotion Playing at the opposite end of the table as a young player, making lots of noise, playing loud and obnoxious, and taunting Sydney as he shoots the dice.
1: All right, old folks, get their bets down. No stopping, no waiting. Get it down, old timer, old fella.
2: Camera holds on Sydney. Hold, pause, he reacts. $2,000 hard eight. The table skips a beat. The pit boss strains his neck. The dealer near Sydney takes two $1,000 chips and places them on the hard eight meaning that the roll must be a 4 by 4 and no other combination to make an 8. The young player is given the dice. For that old fella at the end, hard 8. He shoots the dice. 6, hard, hard 6, roll an 8, shooter. Those who won are paid off. Sydney holds steady. The dice are given to the young player.
1: Oh man, I'm going to get you that hard 8. Just make sure you give me a nice tip.
2: The young player shoots. Stickman says, 3, crap dice, ace deuce, pay the field. Here we go, shooter. eight's the point.
1: With the old man at the end of the table, give me a hundred dollar.
2: Hard eight. The young player throws a chip to the center of the table. Shakes the dice in his hand. Camera does an extremely fast dolly across the table towards Sydney. Young player shoots the dice. There's a beat between when they are thrown and when they land. Sydney just says the line, crack. The dice land. Hard eight. A five and a three. Eight. It came easy. The point. Sydney doesn't flinch. Flinch. He smiles graciously, calls the pit boss, signs a piece of paper signaling his exit time from play, and walks off with his remaining thousand dollars.
1: That is the end of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> what? This
0: That's not is a good sounding.
1: No, it's not a good scene. It's not a good <laughs> scene, and this is like a weird example because because. Like I've heard interviews where Phil says, shut, shut, shut up, shut up, shut. Every single line in that punch drunk love tirade is written out (laughs) and Phil memorized it and said it. Yeah. And PTA has some amazing dialogue. As I already mentioned, Phil invented a completely new scene Yeah. according to this script. Anyways, it's just like shocking to me. And Philip Baker Hall talks about this. I'm going to read this article at the end in a few in a few minutes here. He talks about Philip Seymour Hoffman improvising most of this scene, which I've never heard anyone else talk about, really. But, like, there's a script right here. Like, we're reading the script. It's got to be true, right? Yeah, it says it's final shooting script at the top of it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, did he just come in and and was like, hey, I'm going to... I, I, God, I just wish I was a fly on the wall for that. Like, I imagine it was collaborative. You know, I imagine Paul was like, hey, I want you to improvise if you want or say stuff or mm-hmm. add stuff in. And it seems like Phil just, like, got in the zone and went on a rant. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he added so much, like, inertia
2: and momentum to these little moments that were not, like, what was at stakes? and uh the pressure—it's—it's it's just like that's not really there in the no.
1: Sydney's humanity is not at stake in this script, right? But in the scene, he's like being ridiculed, mm-hmm. and you like feel sad for him. Yeah, it's just uh, a whole new dimension, a whole new layer. Uh, just, just more evidence, as if we needed any more that PSH is the best, y'all. Yeah,
2: I, I do think there's something to be said for like the whoever's whoever broached the topic of like doing what wasn't doing something that wasn't written um you know, this would be the place to do it. And I I don't know why he saw that the way he did. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. like today you could shoot a scene and you hire an actor day player to be the bartender. If they tried yep. anything like this, it would be like, "Oh my gosh, please." shut up.
1: Like, yeah.
2: You know? Yeah. So it's like, well, that's what? how
1: all I can think of It's like when someone comes in with that energy of, I, I want to change the script. I've got ideas. Usually not good. That's, that's a nightmare.
2: Yeah. Usually not good. <laughs>
1: and Never I, good and in I the thi-
2: theater. Never good in the theater. No. Usually almost always not good in film. <laughs> no.
1: Well, and I think that's something else too, where, I, but they, you know, they still, they only, they shot this in 28 days. It's not like they had a ton of time. You know, they didn't have time to mess around here. <laughs> they yes. got to do this thing and get home. Yes. Uh, but somehow what, what we have on the screen, on the print is a one scene wonder, a scene stealing performance. And like you said, it, it is, I love what Sarah said, this like intermission quality to it. Where yeah. like, <laughs> we're sticking it to the protagonist with this other, this other force of nature who brings all the ridicule and the negativity and the cruelty with a sprinkle of humanity and regret because he can't resist not fully forming someone to the best of his ability, to the best that the scene would allow. Mm -hmm. It's just so awesome. Love it.
2: Yeah. I mean, he, he saw potential and did it as best as he could. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, just in a way that I don't know who else would have,
1: yeah, I don't either, Andrew. Any final, final thoughts about Hard Eight and Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in the film?
2: Yeah, I, I, something on a technical level that I find interesting too is that there's like a wider shot of him too doing this.
1: <laughs>
2: mm. So they like cut between, I think, two different angles. So yeah. they're the fact that there was that kind of like energetic improv and some sort of retention of that, I think is, right. is cool. Maybe they had someone write it out or I, you know, who knows?
1: Yeah. Or or I wonder if he, if he just kind of did, you know, multiple takes with each setup mm-hmm. of various similar forms of improv and it was spliced together to be what we see today. Because I, I mean, I think those, those cutbacks to Sydney and those cuts to the table, like there's certainly opportunity where we could have different audio, different takes, you know, all kind of patched in there. Maybe he just went on multiple bouts of improv.
2: Yeah, and then he's gonna put it together.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: I love that one cut too. maybe in the in the script the pit boss. I don't really know who that is in yeah, relation yeah. to craps, but um, just the one cut to that one guy after Sydney says, you know, two thousand dollars hard eight or whatever. It's just like yeah, it's kind of just uh, th- there's like a proper enjoyment of these these nevada these Nevada people, yes, from yes, the exactly. the filmmaker's perspective um I will just say uh, a recommendation to anyone who is really fascinated by the story of heart eight or and or um pretty much all of paul's films uh pre inherent vice Mm. the book blossoms in blood is very good um very Mm. thorough kind of gives a lot of insight into the logistics and aesthetics of paul's films which phil was a part of a lot and it is is a little expensive i think it's like 25 bucks because it's published by the university of texas or something they might use it as a textbook sometimes Mm. or something but (laughs) it's a great book if you're
1: you're into this stuff and I will add a link to that book in the show notes
0: hey big time I'll buy you a drink <laughs>
1: so I want to close out with uh, Philip Baker Hall was, was interviewed for Rolling Stone um, shortly after, after Phil passed and he talks about this improvisation that we just went through and he just says some other things that I think really capture Phil as an actor it's just a really great tribute so here we go Philip and I had a working relationship with the Paul Thomas Anderson movies, and my regard for him both as an artist and a man couldn't be higher. He was a great artist and amazing actor. As a man, I found his generosity and purity of spirit was absolutely remarkable. I met him more than 15 years ago. He was very young then, and he was like a kid. Even then, he always had a positive attitude and a wonderful sweetness about him. I first saw him in the 1994 film Nobody's Fool, playing a police officer with Paul Newman. When we filmed Heart 8, I was shocked at his ability to improvise his way through. He improvised most of that crap scene and just had such a sense for timing. At that point I was older and he was very young. I was like, who is this kid? He was so aware of everything and had the instinct of an older trooper. As I began to know him better and work with him more, I realized he was a genius and operating at a different level than the rest of us. His talent was so dynamic that he didn't need the years of experience. I think he arrived fully formed. He was like the rest of us working with Paul Thomas Anderson at the time. We were all glad to be there and so respectful of Paul's uncanny ability. I would almost classify the two of them together in a way. They were very young people who arrived at a higher artistic level at such a tender age. Philip was always accessible and had a wonderful lightness of spirit. But his demeanor would accommodate whatever the demands of the character were. He wasn't an actor who was lost in his character to the point where you couldn't speak to him or where he couldn't appreciate the paternal interaction that went on. He was always very life-affirming and encouraging to his peers. He just had such a positive and cheerful demeanor. With Boogie Nights, we didn't realize the influence and acclaim it would have at the time. You try not to make those judgments at the time because you have to do your work today and keep moving. You don't have time to reflect on what might be or what might happen. I was certainly aware of his extraordinary gifts, but I didn't know that that would be his breakout role. We were all aware of the daring excellence of the movie and of Paul's brilliance, but you never know how these things are going to go. His death is an absolute shock and loss to the whole world of artists everybody will feel this loss, whether they know it or not. You can't lose a person of this dynamic and importance without it lessening the whole fabric of the art. I'm also thinking of the younger actors. He was relatively young, but for many, he had already become an icon, and they will certainly be affected by this as well. The whole film and theater community will suffer this loss for a long time. That's That is sponsored by One County Film, an independent film company telling stories with authentic characters and unique settings. You can rent our debut feature film Palace on Amazon right now. Our second feature film, Pompano Boy, is it's been submitted to festivals. It's, it's finished. Uh, Andrew wrote and directed that film. I produced that film. Hopefully the world will get to see it sometime next year. We'll see what happens with this festival run. Uh, but we're also putting out content on youtube our, our friend jose has joined us he's doing criterion roundups and some other interesting stuff uh, i know andrew has got the one county podcast um, which may be having a revamp should i put that out on the air or should i not put that out on the air <laughs> i don't know we're, we're in talks to figure out what kind of direction we want to we're in, talks. It in yeah yeah but we're doing stuff on on instagram on facebook if you love movies if you love films if you love philip seymour hoffman and criterion movies you know we're we love movies, we watch a lot of movies, and we're just trying to share that love with the rest of you while making a few at the same time. That's That is produced by me, Timothy Mark Davis, and edited by Ryan Arnst. Our show music was composed and edited by Jessica Ray Huber, and our graphic was designed by Drew Hannigan. You can connect with One County Film and all the film loving things we're doing on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook all at one County film or slash one County film. You can connect with me on Twitter at Timothy Mark Dav, Timothy Mark, D a V and Instagram at Timothy Mark Davis. Andrew, do you have anything new, anything you want to throw out there or promote? And then where can the people find you if they haven't followed you yet? Um, yeah,
2: you can find me on Instagram at Andrew Paul Davis and then Twitter, Andrew Davis film. Uh, when is this episode airing? Do you know?
1: It will air on October 29th.
2: Ah, at, at this point, I will have a new single out called "Politician" nice. for your election oh. vibes. Oh. <laughs> so, just um, what we need. Yes, so you can check that out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your music. And or if they follow you on Instagram, it'll be a new yeah, bio, right. Yes, yes, yes. Sick. Yep, and yeah, stay tuned for. More movies throughout the years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's, all, I think that's all I got. Amazing call to action. Yeah. Throughout Stay the years. Stay tuned for more movies throughout the years. Yeah. <laughs> uh well, thank you for listening to That's That. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I recently switched to Spotify because I think the user interface is way better. Uh, nice. It's insane. But uh, Apple does have the rate and review stuff, which helps the, the podcast. Please like, the go
2: go rate it right now because I just searched That's That on the podcast app and it doesn't even come up.
1: It doesn't come up. Yeah, I think shows. if you type in Philip Seymour Hoffman, it comes up. But yeah. That's That is is a bit of a challenge too. Yeah, we need, come up, we need to
2: get all these all these people on board who are searching that's that for different reasons.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, we've had like we've had seventy seventy five to a hundred plays on every episode. So I mean, there's that's some good. faction of people out there who enjoy what, what we're doing. So uh, if you do enjoy it, please share it because there are more people who will enjoy loving on Philip Seymour Hoffman and. Unnecessary backstories to some of these films, and different clips of interviews, and it's yeah, it's not a fun. Time not to for all who love not
2: Phil. to keep going on and on, but I, I was just uh, mulling over John's comment about <laughs> you know <laughs> yes. spending the first three three minutes of this episode not talking about film. Yeah. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, he was just like a servant to theater, of course, but also the film art form, yeah. and it's like he was doing it for the movie you know and yep i think it's if we if we spend 30 to 60 minutes just talking about his performance in a lot of these movies where it's just a few minutes Mm -hmm. you'll start to hate acting probably (laughs) it's (laughs) It's like oh damn his eyebrow (laughs) you know it's like no
1: he wouldn't want that no no he wouldn't want that so again Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time with an in-depth look into the 2011 political thriller Ides of March, directed by George Clooney and starring Ryan Gosling, George Clooney, Paul Giamatti, Evan Rachel Wood, Marissa Tomei, Jeffrey Wright, and of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman. The film is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, so please check it out and join us for a deep dive. My guest will be friend... And politics enthusiast, oh, it's going to get bloody out here, people, Tim McDermott. Oh,
2: exactly. I'm going to watch that again. Yes, yes. I'm going to check that one out.
1: I've only seen that one once, so I'm really looking forward to revisiting. Nice. Andrew, before we leave, I need the guest to quote Adam Sandler from Punch Drunk Love in a line he says to Dean Trumbull, played by Phil. And the line is, I'd say that's that mattress, man. I'd say that's that mattress, man. That's that, everybody.